Hello and welcome to the Children's Learning Disability Therapeutic Service series of podcasts. I'm Louise McConnell, clinical lead for the service, um, and today I'm with Sheila uh, from our team. And Sheila and I are going to have a discussion around the term challenging behaviour. Why don't you introduce yourself and your role and tell our listeners a little bit more? So I am Sheila McLaughlin. I have worked in the service for about five years now. I'm a behaviour specialist, so um, uh, we get referrals in from different organisations, be it schools, social workers, home, um, with regards to challenge of behaviour or behaviours of concern. And that's my job just to assess and try and put in a wee plan to implement and help ease the pressures on families or schools. Thank you. So um, let's just kick off with the, the thing that maybe people who haven't come across this before or haven't come across this term before. What do we mean by challenging behaviour? So challenging behaviour or behaviours of concern or any behaviour that causes difficulty for families, school, teachers to manage. And it could be any behaviour that a young person's presenting with that can cause harm to themselves or to other people. So, for example, when you come to our service, we would get a range of behaviours in. So you might have somebody who's presenting with physical aggression towards others. You may have people that are um, self-injurious or hurting themselves in some shape or form. You may have people who have sleep issues. They either can't fall asleep at night or they wake up early in the morning um, or they're not staying asleep and this is impacting on whole families. You've abscondent behaviours, you've the attention deficit disorders. So there's a wide range of behaviours that are presented to the service. Yeah, and I suppose that's the important bit here. Mm. We're not just talking about one specific behaviour. We can be talking about a range of different things. And as you rightly said, it's the behaviour that a person presents with. So why do they present with these behaviours? Well, usually every behaviour happens for a reason. Um, so there's always a reason for the behaviour and we have to try and work out what that reason is. So it's, it's serving a function. Um, we would do a functional assessment and some of the functions that we would come up with often are because of a communication deficit, because of a person's in pain, or you may have the, um, the likes of escape, um, avoiding tasks that they don't like, mm-hmm. attention to gain an interaction with, with somebody and Sometimes people always say, oh, he's doing it for attention, but it's more to gain the interaction with the adult or with the other person in the room. Um, tangible. Some people will perform their behaviour to get something that they want. So somebody might want um, a game that they can't have at that moment of time or mm-hmm. um, might want to go home when they're midway through school. Or also there's the, the sensory function too. So some people perform behaviour because they like the way that it, it feels. And we're a service for children with a learning disability. It's fair to say there might be similar services um, that deal with similar things. But why do you tend to find services such as ours in learning disability services? Um, because quite often um, children with a severe learning disability haven't got, aren't able to make their own needs met. And so they will have communication deficits. They won't be able to tell you that they're in pain. Um, They won't have those ways of telling you more appropriately that something's wrong with them. Okay, so the behaviour happens for a reason. There's a purpose to it. And 
it can often be quite effective way of getting a, a need met. Mm -hmm. But as you've rightly pointed out, it can be challenging for other people. Mm -hmm. So what do we need to think about in terms of how we maybe reduce it occurring or stopping it occurring? Well, we have to ensure that the person has all their, their needs met, that they have everything that they need on a daily basis. For example, that they're not hungry, um, that they're warm, um, that they're wearing appropriate clothing, that their environment that they're in is um, suitable for them, um, that they've got communication schedules in place. Um, and then we have to think about the ABCs. And we would do ABC assessments, which is thinking about the antecedents, what happens before the behaviour the actual behaviour and then the consequences of the behaviour, so what happens after the behaviour. So the antecedents are very important because it can tell you sometimes what's triggering the behaviour. Um, so, for example, somebody wants something out of the fridge but you can't work out what it is they want out of the fridge and they get frustrated and then the behaviour happens. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's looking very carefully at the consequences too because quite often the consequences and how the behaviour is being reinforced will also impact on whether the behaviour happens again or not. So we've got a little girl who has a sensory type behaviour and she is headbutting the ground because she likes the way that it feels. But as a reinforcer, every time she headbutts the, the ground, mummy puts her on the swing. So she headbutts the ground even more. And every time she headbutts the ground, she gets put on the swing. So she's getting reinforced by a preferred activity. Mm. But if we thought about it and went, you know what if we put the swing in regularly throughout her day mm -hmm. so that she gets that sensory experience and the motivator will maybe that'll decrease the amount of times that she'll headbutt the ground. Okay so it's not just about thinking about what happens afterwards in terms of trying to reduce the likelihood of the behaviour occurring it's about thinking about what needs to be done before mm -hmm. the behaviour ever occurs mm -hmm. and I guess that might be so hard for some families because some of these behaviours can be really distressing. Yeah. So they're just looking at how do we stop this mm -hmm. and what do we need to do when the behaviour occurs to stop it. But mm -hmm. what we're saying is actually we need to be thinking about what happens even before the behaviour occurs. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then how do we think about behaviour? Well, we use the positive behaviour framework. Um, so the positive behaviour support framework is thinking about the causes of the behaviour and why it occurs and trying to, and we know that the behaviour has a clear function but it's trying to replace the behaviour then with a more acceptable behaviour so that it achieves the same function. So if the person that was headbutting the ground does it to get the swing, well maybe we can teach her a more acceptable way of asking for the swing for example. And we're looking at proactive strategies then, so we're looking at proactive strategies to have throughout a person's day to help them stay, stay settled and we're hoping to teach them new skills that would be more appropriate and more effective and less stressful for them, less stressful for the, those people working with them and their families. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do here isn't it? It's really just how to give a young person and their family a good life. Mm -hmm. What makes them have a good quality of life as we often talk about. So You've mentioned their proactive strategies. Can I ask you a little bit about reactive strategies then? Um, and maybe you can tell our listeners the difference. 
proactive strategies are what we do on a daily basis to keep our young person settled and happy and calm. Reactive strategies then are what we do in a response to the behaviour in order to get them back down into that state of happy and calm. So it may be bringing in chill out, directing them to another activity, give them a time in their bedroom, helping them to co-regulate, things like that. Okay, and I suppose I'm going to throw in the word here. If a child has been destructive in their environment, it may well be, and we hear this quite often, people say they need consequences for that. And often what people are referring to is punishment. So that idea that um, if in following the ABC, the after the behaviour, there should be a punishment for that particular behaviour. What are our thoughts on that? Punishment is just short term. So we want to look at why the behaviour happened in the first place. And we want to try and change it happening on a long term basis. Punishment isn't effective in letting the, ch- the child's voice be heard. Um, so they've acted out in a way because of their unable to communicate in other ways and then they're being punished by it. It's not appropriate and it's not making them feel, in, feel safe and secure. And it's probably very hard on their self-esteem too. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose that, that to me is the really important bit that we wouldn't think about punishing a child if we thought they didn't have the skills so where you know some of the things that people maybe people are talking about are essentially punishing a child because they can't make their needs known mm-hmm. which is not really thinking about what's going on underneath the behaviors no, of concern it certainly hasn't taught them anything new it doesn't stop them from doing it again okay so i guess what we're saying is we try to keep most of the focus on the proactive strategies mm-hmm. What kind of proactive strategies do we think about? So I've mentioned um, before the likes of communication. So working alongside the speech language therapist or whatever level the child is at at school and making sure that the communication system that they're using is appropriate throughout all environments and that they have choice and that they're able to make their needs known at whatever level specific to them at that time. Looking at structure and routine, it's very important to have structure and routine within the person's day. It's very hard for children with severe learning disability, even up into their teens, to be able to structure their day themselves or to be able to cope with being bored. So you may have somebody that has sat in the living room playing with their iPad for a few hours and then suddenly has had an outburst for no particular reason because the iPad has become boring to them. Mm-hmm. They don't know what to do next and they don't know how to fill their time. And sometimes then this is a way of saying, I need you to interact with me mm-hmm. and to tell me what's happening next. Um, so it's important to have structure and routine so everybody knows what's happening to make them feel safe and secure, to give them a sense of control mm-hmm. over their day, ensuring that children are engaged in activities that are that's that are meaningful to them. So making somebody sit down to a jigsaw puzzle every evening that they absolutely hate or they struggle or find really, really hard to do may not be the best activity. So it's thinking about the activities that they enjoy doing, mm-hmm. looking at the person's physical environment. Is it warm? Is it hot? Is there plenty of space? Is there the freedom to move outside or inside as they need to, to do? Is it too noisy? Thinking about 
others in the environment. Boundary setting. It's important to have your rules and boundaries for all the children in your house or in your class. If there's these are the boundaries and um, these are the rules that we have to, to set and making sure that they're available at that person's level. So the likes of social stories and visuals can help children know what's expected of them in every environment. You know what, Sheila, as you're talking there, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the fact that we often get a referral for a particular person and it said this person has behaviour that challenges. But what you've just talked about there in terms of the proactive strategies often aren't about making the young person do something different. It's about changing lots of things around the person. Yeah. And I suppose, I wonder, do maybe families or carers find that a bit difficult? Because if you go to, say, your GP or your paediatrician and you explain that there's a problem, often there might be a physical investigation or a medication prescribed. But what we're doing um, is asking people to change their lives mm-hmm. a bit differently and, and do things differently and change the environments that are around a young person. It's not necessarily asking the person themselves to change. No, there's no quick fix. And it is looking at certainly how they get on with their environment, how they get on um the environment fits with them and how people actually interact with the person and managing expectations too. Sometimes we can have high expectations of what we're going to achieve by coming to the service but it's managing those expectations that things are brought to a more manageable level but that's there's no quick fixes yeah and you just touched on there because I'm thinking uh, talking about the sort of environmental things the sort of technical term would be the ecological things but I'm thinking about the interpersonal bit now as well that can be key what kind of things are important in terms of the relationships a person has. So it's important that um, they're given opportunities to develop more relationships so that they do go to school and attend school and some people don't like to interact with other young people or some people prefer to interact with adults, taking all that on board or allowing children to have smaller group interaction but um, making sure that they've got the, the nurturing relationships too, that they do feel safe and secure with the adults that are around them. That will help them, their anxiety, for example, to, to reduce. We have talked in other podcasts about the importance of a child feeling calm to allow them to grow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if we're saying that one of the most important things about managing behaviours that are concerning is giving opportunities to learn new skills, you don't learn unless you're feeling relaxed yep. and you're in a positive environment. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've talked about the external things, as I've mentioned, the environmental things. We've talked a little bit about communication strategies and on and those little tools that we need to be thinking about. We've talked about the interaction between the person and those around them. What about in internal to the young person what kind of things might be influencing the behavior that they present with sometimes there's pain and they need to assess for their health and well-being the likes of dental checkups that are done regularly they also need to be able to self-regulate 
and to manage any internal mood or anxiety that they might be experiencing. They may have sensory deficits and sensory needs um, that also need to be managed. Um, and they may then need to be given some coping strategies to help them manage throughout the day and help lower levels of anxiety. So that's a lot to be thinking about. It's understandable why assessments can take a bit of time because mm-hmm. um, it's not just about the person themselves. It's about a lot of factors that need to be taken into account. Thinking about that, so thinking about the assessment and then thinking about how we understand behaviour and that it's a person's attempt to get their needs met. And then we're moving on to the interventions, which are about how do we have, how does a young person have a good life? Mm-hmm. What helps interventions to work well? Well, interventions only work well if everybody's consistent. So if everybody at home is consistent and if school and home can be consistent, then that can be a great help. In our service, for example, some be- some children would just present with behaviours at home but not in school or at school and not in home. And our protocol might be going, well, do you know what, what's going really well in school that can be transferred to home and that might be the, sometimes that's just what's needed to mm-hmm. to marry the two environments off, but sometimes we need to go a wee bit deeper than that. Okay. Just going through some of those things that you've said, the people, the activities, the communication, the environment, what kind of key intervention strategies would you maybe suggest here in this podcast? The likes of facial schedules, the likes of using your first and then, maybe having a chill-out area available for children that they can go to to regulate or to do a nice preferred activities to help them calm down. What coping strategies that they could do that they or that they could co-regulate with an adult or a parent or, or, or teacher in the first instance before they learn to, to do these strategies themselves. I like that term, co-regulate, because we do, you do hear a lot about self-regulation skills, mm-hmm. but we know from sort of very early babies that you can't self-regulate until you, you've been co-regulated. Yeah. So your your parent or your carer needs to be there to demonstrate regulation. Yeah, and it may be something simple like, do you know what, let's smell the flower and blow out the candle. Smell the flower and blow out the candle and count to ten at a very basic level and doing that with mummy. Or doing that with the teacher and then um, as time progresses maybe the young person would be able to do that themselves it's just a simple example any resources you can point our listeners to um there's a good website um the challenge and behavior foundation which is good to to look at and has plenty of resources the likes of middletown school for autism and autism ni have lots of good websites and visuals that can be used too and some advice on sensory advice and even setting up chill out areas and things like that. Okay. I know there will be listeners out there who will be saying, yes, but what do we need to do in those moments where things are really challenging? So what would your suggestions be? Well, I think in the first instance, it's important to just try and stay calm, no matter how stressful it gets. So try and stay calm. If need be, take yourself off for a second. Mm-hmm. Take, you take your deep breath before you come back in and, and deal with the behaviour. Look after your personal space and look at the environment the young person's in. So if you think that they're going to hurt themselves or hurt other people, you may be taking a quick skate around the room to lift objects that may, may harm them 
or may harm other people. Sometimes it's possible to ignore and downplay the behaviour if you can see it happening mm -hmm. uh, and just redirect them quickly to another preferred activity. Mm -hmm. um, or you can take them to another environment. So if um, someone's becoming agitated in the kitchen, just saying, right, okay, let's go outside and onto the swing. Try to avoid getting into that power struggle where, you know, your child is misbehaving and you're saying, don't do that. Or you're starting to raise your voice and tell them off. Um, you're just getting into a power struggle. Try to avoid that. Keep your language to a minute minimum and try using your first and then just to say what's expected of them. Sometimes whenever there's too much chat going on or too much speaks that they can't take it all in and it's agitating them even further. Yeah, I mean, we have talked about that in the other podcasts that actually a child with a learning disability will have delays in their processing and communication difficulties, whether that's their ability to verbally convey their communication needs, but also to receive information. So I know whenever I'm feeling hot and bothered, it's harder for me to take in information that people are saying to me. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, Sheila, but whenever I am hot and bothered, I tend to talk more as well. Mm -hmm. Offer the young person choices. If, they're, if a demand's being put on them, maybe you think, oh, like, do you know what, is this really essential at, at this minute? Will we do this and this now? And then we'll come back to that later on. So if somebody going to have a bath or whatever it could be, that you go back to it later or that you do it the next morning whenever the person's settled. Looking at the environment that they're in and you're managing the noise and reducing the people in the environment. And quickly moving any objects. You may be moving the person to another space. If it's in school, for example, they might be being directed to to a chill out area and you may be making sure that they have their, their visuals so that they can tell you they want their chill out area or that they want to go outside. There may be stages when you know that your child has behaved like this three times in the last month and it's got to a certain stage that we're at crisis mm -hmm. and that we couldn't cope during that crisis and there may be times where you have to consider giving in. Mm -hmm. It's not all the time but there may be times if you think well do you know what last week he threw something through the window and that became a more of an emergency. Mm -hmm. We'll think, well, do you know what, should we give in and we'll learn from this and see what we can do better for the next time. Yeah, giving in isn't... It's not your first protocol. No, it's not your first protocol, but it doesn't mean that you can't do this or you can't manage it or you mentioned the words power struggles. I think sometimes people get into that, well, if I give in, the child has won. Yeah. And yeah. that's not the case. Um, and I do think, as humans, we're sort of set up to that sort of black and white. Yeah. And I think whenever we think about giving in, we have to think, well, do you know what, we have to make sure that we're all safe, and that the child is safe, and that everybody working with the child is safe. And learning from the incident and saying, well, do you know what, could we have done anything? And prepare for the next time, um, and see if we can put anything more positive in place to prevent it from getting to that level. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a little bit there about the, the crisis and the managing the time then it's really really difficult but afterwards what is it the opportunities for parents and carers the opportunities is to look at the whole incident and see why it happened and what we can do better the next time or what, what we can put in place to help the young person the next better to prevent it happening and what would be helpful to, for parents and carers to think about in those times would it be sort of setting it out in almost like an ABC? Yeah, that's when you're looking at your ABCs and seeing if you can say, well, do you know what? I just noticed that every time he behaves like this, before it happens, 
that he's started to jump up and down in his seat or to focalise loudly. So we've started to see some early warning signs and things that are happening too that you might be able to redirect him at an earlier opportunity. Um, or you might be able to see some triggers that, you know what, every time he's asked to come to the dinner table at five o'clock, there's this massive outburst. So there's something about that he's not hungry at this time, that he doesn't want to come to the dinner table, but it's every time. And so noticing a pattern with the behaviour that we can try and change then to and look at what's difficult at that time. And I guess that's where we're drawing on all the other things we've mentioned in the other podcasts, like our communication strategies, like activities, letting people have time to process requests, mm-hmm. making sure there's a good sleep routine in, in place. Again, going back to the idea that actually some of the work um, to manage behaviours of concern doesn't happen in that moment. It happens in the hours and the days beforehand. Finally, Sheila, anything else you would want to remind families of? Anything you would you think that's important for families to remember? Keep positive. Keep yeah, no, I just think um, it can be really hard. Um, but yes, stay calm, keep positive and work well and try and stay consistent and take on board advice from schools, from professionals um, and always come forward if you need, need any more help. Sheila, thank you very much um, for that. Uh, I know that this can be a very difficult subject for families, but yet I know it's a subject that families need and seek out advice on. So listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, I hope that was useful. Please give us feedback. Uh, If there's anything you would like us to follow up on, there will be opportunities to do that alongside the podcasts. And check out the other podcasts that will sit alongside this one from today. So Sheila, thank you very much. And for now, all the very best.